The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. A couple Sundays ago, uh, we did a uh, question and answer time and had a wonderful time uh, interacting together on some questions that you had, and you had submitted those ahead of time. One of the questions that was submitted ahead of time was the question, could you provide some biblical guidelines for consideration in the upcoming election? And I chose uh, not to answer that question that morning because I felt like it devoted or needed, uh, uh, deserved a fuller treatment than what I could give it in a question and answer time. So this morning I want to give you some biblical perspectives on the 2016 presidential election. And as I begin, let me, let me just say this. Uh, I do not like politics. Uh, I'm not a big fan of politics. I, I don't uh, enjoy necessarily uh, dialoguing a lot about politics and getting deep into politics. Uh, I vote and I stay informed on the issues and I pray for our country's leaders, but I largely find politics to be... Uh, frustrating and uh, controversial, and so I don't like to, to go there. Uh, maybe that's you, maybe it's not. I think added to that fact is the fact that uh, we're not of this kingdom. Our citizenship is not of this world. And so, frankly, it doesn't really matter what happens in America politically because it has no bearing on the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my servants would be fighting, so I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And so I am not particularly concerned. I am concerned, and we're going to talk about the issue, but I'm not particularly concerned about the American political arena because my greater concern is what God is doing in His kingdom. And that should be our our interest as believers as well. The things that have an impact on eternity are not the things that are going to be found in this realm, in this world, in any political system. So as we begin, I have to say I really don't have much interest in politics. But having said that, I believe there are crucial times when we need to talk about it and when we need to address it and when Someone needs to give some biblical perspectives on it. It's a topic that has gripped our country. It is a topic that is the primary topic right now. We're just two months away from the election. November 8 is coming quickly. We're about eight weeks out, and this is the topic. Everyone's talking about it. It's the, it's the main topic in all news channels online. It's, it's, it's permeating the blogosphere. I mean, this is the topic that, that people are talking about. There's papers, there's articles, there's, there's blogs all about this. And in the midst of this, I find that Christians are trying to figure out, what do I do? I think what we have right now are a number of Christians who are in a moral quandary as, as what they should do in this election. And as I was preparing and studying and, and kind of reading and getting ready for this, I've been reading about some positions and papers and blogs for weeks, thinking about this topic. I have found that church members, Christians, and church leaders are all over the map on this particular election. It's just really interesting to me that the last election was really a kind of a cut and dry election. It really wasn't that controversial. The biggest issue we as Christians wrestled with, or some did in the last election, was can a Christian vote for a Mormon? 
That was the biggest issue. Because the candidates were so polarized on so many issues, it was very, very clear, really, where uh, believers in most cases would land, but not this one. This one's different. This one's far different than what we saw four years ago. The candidates that we currently have are two of the historically most undesirable candidates. And I understand that there are other candidates, there are others on the ballot, it's not just two parties, but at the same time, it it, it is. And so I I found that we are dealing with a very interesting election cycle this time, and so Christian leaders are divided as to what to do on this issue. There are, on the one hand, Christian leaders, evangelical leaders, church leaders who are advocating for and um, boldly declaring that Christians should vote for Clinton. One of those examples would be Thabiti Anyawabile, who is a pastor in uh, D.C. He's written extensively on the Gospel Coalition about this issue. He believes that Clinton would be the best candidate for our nation because at least she's predictable. Here's the quote. Quote, I prefer the predictable over the unpredictable. Whatever we might call Clinton, however we might evaluate her as a leader or her platform as a vision for America... We could say more or less the exact same things about Trump with one glaring exception. We have no way of predicting Trump's behavior from one hour to the next. None. Except to predict that his behavior will be vile and repulsive for any person who cares about civility, truth, and the dignity of the office. Clinton represents the status quo. A steady state of affairs in that regard. Trump is the revolutionary, the rebel it seems, without a cause. His prescriptions are not only draconian but also erratic. When I add the loathsome race-baiting, the misogynistic views of women, the isolationist foreign policy notions, the equivocating on abortion, the advocating of war crimes and escalation of conflict even with allies, I'm left looking at a revolutionary that would cast us in sentiment and law back to the 1940s at least. End quote. There's a Christian leader who is unequivocal in his support of Clinton because he sees Trump as angry, egotistical, erratic, belligerent, bombastic, misogynistic, a racist, and one who's wickedly immoral and has no qualms sharing about his sexual escapades. On the other hand, there are Christian leaders, evangelical leaders in the church, who are arguing that Clinton is actually worse, that she is a liar, that she has built a platform on abortion rights and the rights of homosexuals and will push the transgender issue further than we've seen so far. She is financially corrupt, she is self-righteous, and so tied to Wall Street that she will be unable to actually lead our country because of those ties. So there are many Christians who are saying, there's no way I could vote for Clinton. Wayne Grudem, perhaps, has most articulately stated this position. He came out just a little over a month ago with an article entitled, Why Voting for Donald Trump is a Morally Good Choice. It really electrified the blogosphere and really brought about a bunch of opposition because in it, he he said that despite Trump being a flawed candidate, he still believes in the lesser of two evils and that he would be the best choice for our country. He says this, he says, quote, there's nothing morally wrong with voting for a flawed candidate if you think he will do more good for the nation than his opponent. In fact, it is the morally right thing to do, end quote. What he did in his article is he essentially went on to describe what our country would look like under Clinton versus what our country would look like under Trump, 
And he cited a number of different areas, including abortion and homosexuality and Christian businesses and churches and the future of the Supreme Court justices and the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. And he painted a very different picture, fast-forwarding, looking ahead to what our country would look like under Clinton versus Trump in those particular areas. So within the church, within evangelicalism, you have a polarizing of positions on what to do in this election. It's no wonder, then, that you've also got people within the church, within the evangelical leadership, saying you shouldn't vote for either of them. Alan Noble, back in June of this year, wrote an article entitled, Evangelicals Like Me Can't Vote for Trump or Clinton. And here's what he says, quote, From the Democrats, we have a candidate who radically supports abortion by ending the Hyde Amendment and who most suspect will advocate for LGBTQ laws that put religious institutions in conflict with the law or their conscience. Clinton's handling of her email scandal also shows an indifference or even disdain for the rule of law and the tremendous responsibility of her position. In short, she appears untrustworthy as a politician and indifferent or hostile to the concerns of many evangelicals. And from the Republicans, he says, we have a deceptive, infantile, racist demagogue with no political principles aside from his own self-interest. And so his position is you shouldn't vote for either of them. You should vote either for a third party or you should not vote at all and put your efforts towards electing people to Congress and state governments who have the opportunity to restrain whatever candidate is elected. So this is his position. What in the world are we supposed to do? We've got leaders in the church saying you should vote for Clinton. You've got leaders in the, in the church saying you should vote for Trump. You've got leaders in the church saying it really you shouldn't do either. You should vote for a third party or not vote at all. So how do, we, how do we sort through this? How do we even approach this? How do we even begin to frame up a, a, a response and, and to know what to do in this situation? Well, I want to give you some perspectives. Now, here's what I'm not going to do. If you're here this morning and you're expecting to find out who you should vote for, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. That is your conviction. That is something you need to come to a conviction on, and it's something that hopefully maybe some of the perspectives I give you this morning will help you sort out. I want to begin by giving you a kind of a roadmap to how we got here. How did we get here in the first place that we have essentially the two candidates that we do? Uh, how, how, How do we need to understand government And then what are some principles that we need to consider as we go to the polls uh, coming up in a few weeks? So let me first track with you how we got here. I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. How is it we got to a place where really we're forced to choose between two undesirables? How do we get here? How have we come to this point in our nation where the, the two choices that we're left with essentially, apart from a third party, are really neither that we would like to see in office. I would submit to you that the reason we've gotten here is because we get the leaders that we deserve. A nation always gets the leaders that it deserves, and that's exactly where we're at right now as a nation. We have gotten the potential leaders that we deserve, and Romans 1 is a section of Scripture that tells us all about that. If you've been with us for the last year, you know that we've gone through this. You've heard me preach on this, so I'm just going to quickly highlight some portions of this. Romans chapter 1, Paul is describing the wrath of God that comes upon the people who reject him. 
We could say the wrath of God that comes upon a nation that, that rejects him. He describes here what happens to people individually and to nations corporately when they reject God. And his whole thrust here is to show that to reject God, to fail to acknowledge him, is to invite judgment upon yourself and to invite judgment upon your nation. To refuse to worship him, to refuse to give him glory, to refuse to acknowledge to him, is to ultimately invite his judgment upon yourself. That's what he's talking about here in Romans 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to him. Paul describes here the wrath of God that comes upon people who reject God. And he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven presently. It's not just a future thing. It's a present reality against all those who are ungodly and unrighteous and suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. All who stifle the truth of God, all who resist it, all who push it down, all who deny it, all who suppress it, all who fail to acknowledge that there is a God and He is worthy of worship will experience the wrath of God. And the reason for this, verse 19 says, that that that, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to him. Paul is very clear here that every single person, every single nation, every people group who's ever walked this earth has an awareness of the fact that God exists. God has revealed himself to him. He has revealed his truth about himself in every human heart and the stamp of his likeness is upon every single individual. So there is not one person who has ever lived or will live who can claim an ignorance of God. There's no such thing as an atheist. No person can one day plead ignorance before God and say, well, I didn't know you existed. No, this is a very clear testimony that God has made it evident within them, and He's made it evident to them. You say, how? Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And Paul is very clear that the way that every single person knows that there is a God and they are accountable to that God is the fact that they live in the very creation that God made. And that creation testifies to His existence and to his reality, and to the fact that he is. So nature itself, the created order, all that is in our world, all the mountains, the animals, the birds, the trees, the streams, the lakes, the universe, the stars, the moon, everything exists to shout out, there is a God. And verse 20 tells us things that we can learn about God. From that, we can learn about his eternal power and divine nature. We can learn that that God is powerful and we can learn that He is a divine being. We can learn about his, his love for beauty. We can learn about His goodness. We can learn about His intelligence and His wisdom. We can learn about His kindness and His eternality. We can learn about God by seeing the fact that God made something that points to the Creator. The creation exists to demonstrate that there is a Creator. And so there is this external witness to the fact that there is a God. It's known as general revelation. Added to that, just look over on Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Not only is there an external witness, there is an internal witness. 
an internal witness to the fact that God is and exists. It's found in the conscience. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Paul describes here an internal witness. Not only is there an external witness to the fact that God is in creation and nature, there is an internal witness in the conscience which God has placed within every single individual that either accuses them when they sin or defends them when they do what's right. You can't escape it. You've got both an external witness and an internal witness on the fact that God is and God exists. And so all of that is meant to drive us to God. All of that is meant to drive us to the worship of the one true God. All of this is meant to drive nations to the fact that God is, that He exists, and He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of adoration. He's worthy of us bowing the knee before Him and extolling Him. That's why you see all throughout the Scriptures this invitation to worship God. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's an invitation to the creation that God has made, to the people that He's made in His image to to worship Him. The first commandment that God gave to His people in the book of Exodus says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The external witness of general revelation and creation and the internal witness of the conscience is meant to drive us to the fact that God exists, that He and He alone is worthy of worship. There is no God but the true God. There is no worship but the worship of the true and living God. There is no law except the law which God Himself has given. So this is what this is meant to do. But you'll remember what we said in our study of Romans that this is not what natural man does. Natural man rejects that. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him. Despite this this external evidence, despite this internal witness, despite the the clear evidence that God is and that he, He exists and He's worthy of worship, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened, and professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. This is what unregenerate man does. They take the testimony of God, they deny it. They say there is no God, and in the end, they become fools. One writer says, when people remove God from their consciousness, ban His name from public discussion, and make Him politically incorrect, the inevitable result is that all their thinking becomes futile. 
That's where we're at. We're in a nation that has become futile in our thinking. And this is Paul's point as, as he goes on in Romans chapter 1, and we looked at this before, so let me just quickly highlight it. In Romans 1, verses 24 to the end of the chapter, he essentially describes what happens to those people or those people groups or those nations that will not acknowledge God. And he tells us very clearly in Romans 1, 24 through 32, that there are three stages of God's wrath of abandonment. We've talked about this. There are different kinds of the wrath of God. There's cataclysmic wrath, the kind of wrath of God which is unleashed in the flood, the kind of wrath of God that is unleashed in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's cataclysmic wrath. There's also consequential wrath, the kind of wrath of God which is given to those people who reap what they sow. And then there is eschatological wrath, the kind of wrath that will be poured out in the end times and the tribulation just before Christ returns and all the devastation and all the destruction that will come upon this earth during that seven-year tribulation. That is eschatological wrath. And in addition to that, there's eternal wrath, the kind of wrath that people will experience in hell forever as they've rejected God and they die and then are cast into what is, first of all, hell and then the lake of fire. Paul's not talking about any of those here. He's talking here about the wrath of abandonment. When a people or a nation get to the point where God says, all right, you don't want me, you won't worship me, you won't acknowledge me, then have at it. I'm removing all restraints, and you're able to do whatever you want to do and suffer the consequences for it. Three stages described in these verses of what happens to individuals and nations when they abandon God. Stage number one is in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of the hearts to impurity so that their bodies will be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What's the first stage when God gives people over? It's the stage of sexual immorality, sexual revolution. Uh, sexuality is taken out of the context of marriage, and people begin to commit all kinds of immoral, inappropriate, perverted sexual acts, which demonstrate that they have been given over by God to their sexual desires. To the point where verse 24 says their bodies are dishonored among them. That's stage one. Stage number two is found in verse 26. Stage number one is a sexual revolution. Stage number two is a homosexual revolution. Verse 26 says, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Stage number two is a homosexual revolution. Verse 26 describes lesbianism. Verse 27 describes homosexuality between men as those same-sex individuals burn in their desire towards one another. Listen, I said this a while ago. Homosexuality is not an alternative lifestyle. It's a judgment from God. It's a judgment. Because this is in the context of judgment. And God even tells us the penalty of that judgment. Verse 27 says they receive in their own persons the due penalty of of their error. That's stage number two. Stage number three, when an individual or a nation rejects God, is found in verse 28. 
It's a depraved mind. It says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And then listen to this list. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. So what you have here in stage three is not just a sexual revolution and not just a homosexual revolution. You have a a people that are characterized and categorized by an absolutely depraved mind to the point that they think what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right. And that is evidenced in the fact that they give themselves over to gross and heinous sins. We've talked before and said that this is where our country is. This has been the trajectory of our country. We saw the sexual revolution stage one in the 1960s and 70s. We saw the homosexual revolution in America on stage two in the 80s and 90s. And we are currently in the 2000s where we are watching before us a nation descend into depraved thinking, a depraved mind. So it is very obvious as we look at this that God has given our nation over in judgment. Verse 32 says that when it reaches this stage, people give hearty approval to those who practice these vices. That's why we have a nation that applauded when a former Olympian transformed himself into a woman and was announced woman of the year. A nation applauded that. They loved that. That's why millions applauded the Supreme Court's decision a year ago to make so-called gay marriage legal in all 50 states. That's why there are people currently applauding the effort to open bathrooms up to transgendered people. By the way, there's no such thing as gender fluidity. It doesn't exist. Either XX or XY, it doesn't exist. You can't transform who you are. So we are currently living in a nation that is characterized by political correctness that has run amok. So this is where we are. This is the path that all nations travel. This is the path that Western Europe traveled. Just go back in history and and understand what took place. The the Reformation took place in in Europe just 500 years ago. And now the place is a spiritual wasteland. Because of Romans 1, this is what happens to nations who reject God. They suffer the judgment that comes with that. They they are on the path to national destruction when they fail to acknowledge God and worship Him and give Him the glory that He is due. And that's the course of every nation. Not just America, not just Western Europe, just ask Israel. Moses told Israel, Back in Deuteronomy 28, God will bless you if you obey Him. God will honor you if you obey Him. It says in Deuteronomy 8, 28, verse 1, it says, Now it shall be if you will diligently obey the Lord, He will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. Very simple. Just acknowledge God, worship Him, obey Him, and He will bless you abundantly. And yet, if you don't, there will be curses. 
And if you reject God and you turn from Him, Deuteronomy 29 says, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? And the men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, their God, their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went and they served other gods and they worshiped them, gods whom they have not known, whom He has not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in this book. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. I understand we're not a theocracy, we're not the nation of Israel, I understand that, but the principle is the same. It's not just true of Israel, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says this, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain." And I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have forgotten, I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them with an earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Listen. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He will not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. You worship the Lord, there's blessings. You pay homage to the Son, God will honor you, God will take care of you. But if you don't, His wrath will be kindled. Nebuchadnezzar found this out the hard way standing in his beautiful palace one day, looked at all that he had made and said, is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And before the words were even out of his mouth, God struck him down, cast him to the field, and he became a cow king for seven years. He ate grass, his nails grew out, his hair grew out, and only after he repented of his sin was he restored to being the nation's ruler. Herod found this out the hard way. Acts 12, verse 23 says, When he failed to worship the God, God uh, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. Listen, when you're in a nation that has rejected God largely and wholesalely, that nation is destined for self-destruction and for the judgment of God himself. So you wonder, why do we have the candidates we do? That's why. Why do we have to choose between two undesirables? Why do we have to choose between two of the most uh, unpopular candidates ever? That's why. And we have a government that largely does not understand its purpose. Turn your Bibles to Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. We, We have a government which in some ways still understands its purpose, but in other ways does not truly comprehend why it exists. In Romans 13, God gives some very clear instructions on the purpose of government. He says in verse 1, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God and that which is 
that which exists are established by God. God is the one who establishes every authority, every king, every president, every ruler. God is the one who establishes that. And that's our confidence going into this election that God's going to put who he needs to be there. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they all who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. You reject authority, you reject your government, you will bear the consequences because God put that government in place. So regardless of what happens on November 8, we're called to submit. But then notice this. What's the purpose of government? Verse 3 tells us one of the purposes, to restrain evil. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Listen, government serves to restrain evil. That's why government exists. That's why God has placed government in authority over all nations. They're meant to deter disobedience. They're meant to be a threat against those who will disobey and commit evil acts. That's why government exists. There's another purpose given in verse 4. To promote what is good. Government serves to restrain evil. Government also serves to promote good. For it is a minister of God to you for good. To regulate society. To promote orderliness. To, to rule in society. To promote peace and justice. To preserve the very fabric of that country so that it functions and flourishes. One other purpose, verse 4, is to punish evildoers. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for the does not bear the sword for nothing. Three purposes of government, to restrain evil, to promote good, to punish evildoers. I want you to notice the second purpose of government is to promote what's good. Listen, the purpose of government is moral. The purpose of government is la- in large parts is not simply economic. It is moral. It is meant to promote what is good and restrain what is evil. And so a government best fulfills its purposes when it upholds the standards of morality found in God's Word because God's Word is the source of understanding of what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. And so a government best functions when it promotes the good, which is described in the Word of God, which will then promote the safety and security of that nation. So you know that a government has lost its focus when it is no longer promoting what is good. What is good? What is good is what's good for the family because the family is the very fabric and DNA of a society. And so when you mess with the definition of a family, you mess with the very fabric of what God has designed. And when you begin to say that that abortion is okay and those kinds of things and you promote a homosexual lifestyle, then that government has ceased to function in God's way. And eventually that government and that nation will plunge into a culture of chaos and self-destruction. Are we there yet? We're not there yet, but that's the trajectory of our nation. So that's probably more than you wanted to know. That's where we are. That's how we've gotten here. And this is what God says about the current state of America. I know most of you want to know, what do you do on November 8th? Most of you want to know what to do when you enter that polling booth in a couple months. So let me close with four guidelines. Four guidelines that may help give you some direction and where to go with this election. First, number one is to consider your options. 
consider your options. There are potentially four options available to you as a believer. There are really options that are available to everybody, but there are options that you need to think through and wrestle with. I think some of these options are far better than other options, but there will be Christians who choose all of these four options. And I think what we need to think about is, first of all, is not all of these options necessarily cross into sin. I think it may be possible for believers to take different positions, to vote differently, to have different opinions among themselves, and, and still be applying some biblical principles. So we have to be cautious on this, that we don't necessarily divide or vilify fellow believers on the basis of who they voted for. I think there's some freedom, so let me give you the options. As I said, some of these are better than others, but let me give you the options. First is to abstain. You may choose to abstain entirely from the election. You may choose not to vote at all because of the candidates, because of the two primary candidates and their character. One writer says this, if we believe no merits, no one merits such endorsement, then we are free to abstain or vote for a minor party candidate and leave the consequences to the Lord. To say it another way, the question, who will do the most good for the country, is valid, but it's not the only question. One believer may believe it is right to vote for the lesser of two evils. Another may conclude, I cannot vote for a candidate I consider evil, end quote. So some may just choose to abstain entirely from the vote and trust the Lord for who gets elected. I don't think that's the best option. You may choose that option. I don't think it's the best option, and here's why. I would argue and urge you to vote. I would urge you to exercise your constitutional privilege to vote. Don't sit this out. And the reason I would say that is because God uses means to accomplish His purposes. And our understanding of the sovereignty of God does not nullify the fact that He uses different things and different people to accomplish what He desires to accomplish. And so you can't just say, well, we believe in the sovereignty of God and He's going to put in the place who He wants. That, that's true, but I believe that is a shirking of your responsibility and your privilege because God uses means to accomplish what He has already ordained. Why do we preach? Because he uses preachers to preach the word of God, which changes people's lives. Why do we pray? We pray because God uses prayer to accomplish his purposes. We don't always understand how those means fit in with his sovereignty, but nonetheless, God uses means to accomplish what he has already determined. So on the basis of that, I would urge you to vote. Because God will use those means to accomplish his plans. Jeremiah told the people, in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. Now again, we're not Israel, we're the church, we're distinct from that, but there's a principle there that I think we should seek the welfare of the, the country that we live in. And one of the ways we can do that is by voting. Galatians 6, verse 10 says, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I would encourage you to do good as you are able to, in the context of your ability to cast a vote, do good, seek the welfare of our country through the privilege that God has given you. 
So one option is to abstain. I don't think it's the best one, but it is an option. Second option, you could vote for a third party. You could vote for a third party. Um, I think you may have that as an option available to you. I think you're going to have to wrestle through, though, the historicity of third-party candidates. Let's just be frank. The chances of them getting elected are slim to none. I think you need to wrestle through that. Maybe that's the option that's best for you because in your conscience, you're not able to vote for one of the two primary candidates, but you're going to have to wrestle through the track record of third-party candidates. There's a third option. You could vote for Clinton. And you may come to the point where you say Donald Trump's character is too uh, terrible. The combination of vice and arrogance and love for personal power is too much. I, I don't think he's fit for the job, and so that is an option available to you. The fourth option, then, of, of course, would be to vote for Trump, where you look at the antics of Hillary Clinton, you look at her lies, you look at her aggrandizement of Planned Parenthood and her liberal positions, and you say, I can't vote for that platform. Those are your options. And you're going to have to wrestle through in your own conscience which of those is best and what you think you should do. I do think, though, that there is some freedom in there, and I think we need to be careful about vilifying fellow Christians in the midst of political diversity. Point number two, I think you need to weigh more heavily the issues that are clearly addressed in Scripture. And if I'm ever going to tip my hand, this is where I'll tip my hand. I believe... As believers, we need to more heavily weigh the issues that are clearly addressed in Scripture. Listen, no candidate is perfectly, going to perfectly match up to what you want, ever. You're never going to find a candidate who perfectly fits what you want in a president. So you have to give up the notion that you're going to get someone who's, who's exactly what you want to be. I, I've never voted for a candidate who stands exactly where I stand. That's, that's, that's just a tension we have to live with in our electoral process. But I think we as believers need to stand up for what is right. We need to promote righteousness. We need to stand for the things that God stands for, and we need to oppose the things that God opposes. So we, I believe, have to always come down on the side of righteousness. Now, again, I'm not speaking on behalf of the elders here. I'm not speaking on behalf of our church. I'm speaking personally for me. And I would, in a sense, exhort you in the same way that you have to stand up for what's righteous. You need to promote righteousness. Listen, I have absolutely no tolerance, and I cannot bring myself ever to vote for a candidate who has a platform that espouses sin. I can't. Because God's going to hold me accountable for that. And so no way and ever in any situation... Can I support someone who endorses a platform that has issues that are clearly spoken about in Scripture and are clearly contradictory to Scripture? You say, well, you're just a one or two issue voter. Maybe I am, but I can't vote for someone who boldly and unashamedly supports abortion. God clearly addresses that issue. I cannot vote for someone who has a homosexual agenda or promotes the transgender agenda I will never knowingly vote for a candidate that has built their campaign on that platform, which is clearly addressed in the Word of God. Those policies have destroyed families. Those policies have resulted in the murder of 60 million babies. 
and they destroyed the very fabric of marriage, which is the very institution that God ordained from the beginning. So, I can't tell you who to vote for, but I think from one believer to another, I can at least exhort you that you need to stand up for what's righteous, and you need to promote righteousness as you can for the good of our society as a believer. James 4 verse 17 says, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Number three. Put your confidence in God, not in politics. Put your confidence in God, not in politics. At the end of the day, on November 8, it doesn't really matter who wins. It does for the good of our country. It does for, for how our future will go as a, as a nation and as the church and what kind of lifestyle we'll have as believers. In that sense, it matters. But it doesn't really matter when it comes to the kingdom of God and God's eternal decrees and purposes. That really doesn't matter who's in the office. It doesn't matter who's in Congress. It doesn't matter who's in the Democrats, the Republicans. It really doesn't matter because God is still on His throne And we admit that, and we know that, and that's our hope, and that's our confidence that He is sovereignly in charge of all the affairs of the world, and so no no election is going to change that. Nothing's going to change on November 8 when it comes to the kingdom of God. He's in charge. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And He uses all the things that take place in this earthly kingdom to accomplish His eternal kingdom. Daniel 2 verse 21 says, it's he who changes the times and the epics. It is he who removes kings and establishes kings. Daniel 4 verse 17 says, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Listen, God will not be caught off guard on November 9. He won't be on plan B. He won't be twiddling his thumbs, scratching his head, trying to figure out what happened. And added to this, we just talked about it in communion. What's our hope? Our hope is not this earthly kingdom. It's the eternal kingdom. It's the kingdom of Christ who's returning back, who will see face to face, who will come and return with all power and all authority and establish his throne and his rule over Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he will rule with all power and with all might, and all the nations will flock to Israel when he returns to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our hope. So put your hope and your confidence in God, not in politics. Lastly, number four. Remember that our priority is the gospel. Remember that our priority is the gospel. By that I mean whenever the church has sought political influence, it always compromises its biblical mandate and responsibility. Every time the church gets on a political bandwagon, every time there's a moral majority and we seek to employ the church and getting on some political cause, it becomes ineffective in the thing that really matters, which is the gospel. What's going to change people's hearts? Not politics. What's going to bring people into the kingdom of God? It's the gospel, not some election. So our church, the church, is never called to change the culture 
You need to understand this. There's no mandate anywhere in Scripture where we are called to engage the culture and change the culture through whatever methods and means we can, through elections, whether morally or politically. We're never called to change the culture. We're called to engage the culture for the cause of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, but we're never called to try and facilitate some change in culture which will then bring in the kingdom of God. We are called to the Great Commission, not the Great Election. 1 Peter 3, verse 15 says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Are you prepared to give a defense of the hope that lies within you? It's not politics. It's Christ. So what's the salt and light of the earth? Not Washington, D.C. You. Us. And the only way anything is going to change in our country is if pastors and churches boldly preach Christ and Him crucified. That is the only hope for our nation. That is the only hope for turning people's hearts back to the Lord. That is the only way in which we'll see any kind of uh, change in our country, any kind of revival will only take place in the church not the government. And so our confidence is in God and our confidence is in the gospel. And that's all I have to say about that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the fact that even your word has principles for us to consider as we evaluate a national election. Lord, would you please give us wisdom as we exercise the privilege of voting? We trust you, Lord, that you're going to put the right person in office. Lord, you tell us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we need to pray for kings and rulers and those in authority over us. And so, Lord, we, we do pray. We pray that you'd be merciful to our country. For we don't deserve a good leader. We don't deserve a righteous ruler. But we would pray, Lord, if it would be your plan and your kindness that you would allow us to have a ruler who, for the foreseeable future, will allow us to continue to meet, who will allow us to continue to assemble as fellow believers, who will preserve some semblance of religious liberty, We know that that's not even guaranteed. Lord, your word does not guarantee religious liberty. But we would pray that you would give us the freedom to continue assembling and meeting together to worship you. Lord, give us wisdom and help us to trust you no matter the result come a few weeks from now. Lord, we thank you that our hope is not in this kingdom. Our hope is in you. Our hope is in Christ. And we look forward to his return and his kingdom when he rules and reigns with all power and authority. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.